lots of land under starry skies above Don't fence me in Let me ride through the wide open spaces that I love Don't fence me in I want to be by myself in the evening breeze Listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees Send me off forever but I don't fence me in just the idea of the West continues to hold cultural sway with us in our entertainment, in our fashion, and in our lifestyles. I'm Suzanne Lang, bringing you a novel idea. I want to ride to the range where the West commences. Howl at the moon till I lose my senses. I won't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences. Don't fence me in. Today we dive into dude ranches, the freedom they represent, and their rich place in American culture with historian and archivist Lynn Downey and her book, American Dude Ranch, The Touch of the Cowboy and the Thrill of the West. We'll talk with her a little later in the show. Right now, we visit another historian, Teresa Kaminsky, with her book, Queen of the West, The Life and Times of Dale Evans. So put on your cowboy boots and get a cup of joe. It's a novel idea. Dale Evans was not a real cowgirl, though she played one on TV and in the movies and on radio and in arenas all over the world, right alongside her husband, Roy Rogers. Dale Evans' earliest goals in life were to become famous, and she took it however it came. She was a calculating presence and went from getting married at 14 to a popular pinup girl during World War II to the wife of Roy Rogers and mother to his children. She became a Christian songwriter and best-selling author, wearing a kerchief around her neck and fringes on her cowboy boots most of the time. Dale Evans was the Queen of the West, though many people today don't really know who she was. Teresa Kaminsky is a historian who teaches at the University of Wisconsin. She reviews books for Publishers Weekly and the Wall Street Journal, and she writes books about interesting women. This is her fifth book, a thorough examination into the evolution of Dale Evans as a performer and a star and a partner to Roy Rogers. In their heyday, they were everywhere on the screen and airwaves, and they had lots of merchandise in the form of outfits, dolls, and toy six-shooters. Let's listen to our conversation. Queen of the West, The Life and Times of Dale Evans by you, Teresa Kaminsky. Thank you for joining us today to talk about this cultural icon. Well, I'm so pleased to be here, and thank you for the invitation. This isn't your first book, but the subject of this book, Dale Evans, might be your most mainstream subject, perhaps. Talk about your other writing uh, uh, just a little bit before we dive into The Queen of the West. 
Sure. It, she is a bit of a departure, like you said, mostly because she is um, or was a very well-known celebrity. But I originally started writing about women in World War II, and my interest was in sort of reviving stories that had gotten kind of shunted to the side, mostly because they were women's stories. And especially in wartime, you don't have a lot of emphasis on women's experiences, at least not when I started writing about women. And um, my first three books focused on American women who were in the Philippine Islands during World War II. And those islands were occupied by the Japanese. So many of these women ended up living under essentially an enemy occupation for the duration of the war. And when I finally finished writing about everything that interested me on that topic, I turned to the Civil War and Dr. Mary Walker, who was and still is the only woman to ever receive the Medal of Honor. And that was in recognition of her medical services during the war. Wow, that's an astounding fact that nobody else has been decorated that way? No other woman? Right. And it is very, very interesting. I mean, she did make a rather unique contribution, not just in terms of her medical service. Uh, there were other women providing that during the Civil War, but her dedicated insistence that she wanted to be part of the U.S. Army. She doggedly pursued a commission which was repeatedly denied to her and I think that's one of the things that kind of sets her apart and uh, brought her certainly more fame and notoriety in her lifetime. That book is Dr. Mary Walker's Civil War, One Woman's Journey to the Medal of Honor and the Fight for Women's Rights. Let's move on to Dale Evans who was a cultural presence for a good part of the 20th century and was a presence on the radio, in movies, and on television, and as an author. And, of course, she was married to the Western icon Roy Rogers, her fourth husband, his third wife. Now, however, in the 21st century, she might not be known to people younger than 60 or so. And so... I guess like your other subjects, what is the enduring relevance of Dale Evans? I think in her case, what really drew me to researching her as a topic, historical topic, is that drive and dedication for fame, which I think does kind of transcend time. We, we can talk about different generations and who's important to different generations. But even as you, you move on beyond her, understanding what she went through, I think, helps us to understand how then women, and, and again, this would be dating me too, but women like Madonna, who became famous, you know, how do you turn like your entire life into part of your career and make that work for you in terms of celebrity? And I think Dale Evans is certainly one of those entertainment icons that we should always pause and take a closer look at for the ways in which she achieved that. She was a go-getter, very, very driven from a young age. 
She married her first husband at the age of 14 and had a son not too long after. But this didn't stop her from pursuing her path towards stardom. I mean, she wanted to be a star. So can you crack that open for us, her drive and her desire for fame? It is an interesting trajectory to stardom because, as you said, she she started very young and she always said that she knew from childhood that she wanted to be famous. It, it took her a little while to figure out the exact route that she would take because Again, as a child, she's she was interested in acting and singing and even in writing, and she envisioned all sorts of avenues of fame for her, but it really was singing that caught on, and she started singing as a child in church. And again, this is uh, kind of a familiar story we hear with many different singers over the years, and it really worked for her. And she always, though, was balancing this with an equally strong desire to have a great home life. She also wanted a family. She didn't see these two things as being mutually exclusive, which for a woman of her time was unusual because even in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s, there were female actors who once they got married, they just they stopped working. So for her to insist on having these two parts of her life work together, I mean, that really adds a bit of a complication to this, this drive for fame. And when she divorced her first husband, she had the opportunity, her, her mother offered to actually adopt her son and raise him as her son so that Dale Evans, or as she was known, still known at the time, Francis, so young Francis could still enjoy what was left of her teenage years and not have to worry about being a mother. But even as a teenager, she insisted that her son was her responsibility. And she took courses so she could get a clerical job so that she could work during the day and have money to support her son. And she started singing in the evenings. And of course, this is back in the 20s. So that meant either personal appearances, which could be um, sometimes hard to schedule, but what she really wanted to do and what she succeeded in very quickly was to break in through radio. And that was the path for success for most singers in the early part of the 20th century. And that's how you really build an audience is getting on a radio program and singing and making sure that those listeners fall in love with you and your voice. She then goes to Hollywood and the whole concept of her son is uh, she enters in into Hollywood at a time when the studio systems were really defining character, look, and um, who you presented yourself as to the public. And she actually was convinced, but maybe I don't know if it maybe didn't take a lot of convincing, to um, say that her son was her brother because she was so young when she had her son 
certainly she's not the only Hollywood star who um, had a little bit of subterfuge about their children. So talk a little bit about that and what pushed her in that direction. By the time she went to Hollywood in the summer of 41, she was already in her late 20s. And to go to Hollywood and try and sort of pass herself off as an ingenue, she she knew that was going to be very difficult. And she would claim in later years that she was kind of reluctant to even go for that first screen test because she thought she was too old for Hollywood. She didn't think she was too old for the Broadway stage, which was what she was still hoping for, but she did have qualms about Hollywood. And yet she decided to go and give it a try. And she did have the support of her husband and her son to at least go and see what Hollywood had to offer. But when she was there for that first tryout, she really did get just sort of thrown into that whole Hollywood system that you just mentioned. And the agent that she met with, he took her right away. She had to have her hair redone. She had to have her makeup done. He criticized the clothing that she wore. And everything had to fit into this certain studio image. And then when she does reveal to him that not only is she married, and he doesn't seem to have a problem with that because that's a fairly typical thing to deal with. But when she says that she has a son who is not a really young child at this point, he's he's pretty shocked by that. And he said, you know, we're, we're going to have to pass him off as your younger brother. And we can't admit that this is your child. And she does wrestle with this enough that she has a conversation with her son, Tommy, and she asks him if this is okay with him because she isn't quite prepared to totally discount his, his input on this. And he does tell her that if she needs to do that, to get the job, to have the career, then he is okay with that. But with one sort of warning to her, and this gets to his upraising, which was not only from his mother, Dale, but from his maternal grandparents as well. Um, he was a very devout Christian, and he said that he would never offer information about his true parentage. But if somebody directly asked him if he was Dale's son, he would tell the truth. And so she did agree to this. And when she was in Hollywood for those first years, whenever photographers came around, reporters came around, Tommy just had a way of making himself scarce anyway. So he didn't really factor that much into the public conversation, but this was certainly controlled by her agent and by the studios. And she had, it seemed like a difficult time at first getting traction in the movies and doing the kind of roles she wanted to do. But simultaneously, she was continuing her radio work. And this, this is, um, you know, on the cusp of uh, World War Two, And she got involved with the Hollywood Victory Committee. 
and she it seems like she made hundreds of appearances uh, with the USO and that she also was a pinup girl, which we don't necessarily have that impression of Dale Evans in our mind. But this all was happening before she even um, was teamed up with Roy Rogers. So she was developing and had developed a degree of success and visibility before she teamed up with him. Yes. And the link with the radio programs is is also a very interesting one. And it was it wasn't one that I had known about until I started doing some research into her life. But she did have a difficult time even after she and her family settled in Los Angeles and um, Paramount, where she had done her first screen test, they actually passed on her. She did get a one year contract with 20th Century Fox, and she made some very, very brief appearances in a few films and never really caught on there. The studio just didn't know how to essentially package her, you know, what kind of actor she was supposed to be. But she maintained her presence in Hollywood through radio appearances. Again, radio was still such a huge part of people's entertainment. And unlike the movies, a lot of people had radios in their homes. So this was something that was listened to on a daily basis. And the more she could be heard on radio, again, the more popularity, familiarity. But when the United States entered World War II in December of 1941, and the entire Hollywood community sort of pulled together to support the troops, and there were, yes, hundreds, she she made hundreds of personal appearances, mostly up and down the West Coast during the war years. And she was a very, very popular uh, they were known as pinup girls. And in at least a couple of years among polls taken among servicemen, she usually ranked, you know, in the top five of popular pinups. We mostly think of Betty Grable, but uh, Dale Evans was very popular. So she she does have a pretty good name for herself. Again, not at one of the big studios, but in 1943, she got signed on at Republic Pictures, which was known mostly for its uh, black and white sort of genre move, movies, serials, things like that, a lot of Western pictures, a lot of light comedies. And they put her to work right away. She was a featured player, if not a star, but she was always working and she was singing in these movies. She was acting in these movies. And she thought she was perfectly cast for these sort of light, musical, romantic comedies. And she was really enjoying her time at Republic until the head of the studio attempted to pair her with Roy Rogers, which was one of the studio's big cowboy stars. And she did not think she was the type for Western pictures. She did resist that teaming with Roy Rogers, which is just, I don't know, so ironic in that, well, she became the Queen of the West, and we don't think of Dale Evans outside of uh, um, wearing a, you know, Western outfit or something. But once they were paired up, it seems like they had a good working relationship 
before a romantic one, and that they were a popular screen couple. And Roy Rogers himself, uh, he had a strong reputation, a strong public appeal, and was a pretty astute businessman himself in the industry. So I suppose it was inevitable that they would end up together as a couple. But that was a long time coming. It, it was. Um, and they were friends. And it, it was it was kind of a delicate thing for her to resist being paired with him in his movies because she did know that he was extremely popular. And she had met him already. And she liked him. She had nothing against him personally. She she thought he was a wonderful, uh, wonderful man, a good actor, a great singer. Um, it was also kind of dangerous for her to go against the head of the studio to assert herself like that. But she she was willing to do that because she was convinced that Western movies did not make stars out of female actors. And since she was pursuing stardom, uh, Westerns, she didn't think were going to get her where she wanted to go. Yet um, she did learn a lot from Roy when they did finally start working together. Um, their first movie, The Cowboy and the Senorita, was very, very popular among both sets of their fans. And so it was largely with the encouragement then of fan mail that they were put together in, in future films. And their friendship continued. Uh, they were both married to other people at the same time, but they, they were friends. And I do think that Dale learned quite a bit about not just acting, but even about the business of being a star, because Roy had a, a head start on that, and he was very good with business. She had started some of that before she met up with him, you know, things like making business investments, you know, thinking a little bit further ahead to maybe when you're not in directly in the entertainment field anymore. So she was looking to branch out in that way. And I, I think that her relationship with Roy Rogers helped her with that. And then of course it was, um, it was due to a, a family tragedy that they did eventually get together. Dale and her third husband ended up getting a divorce. Later, Roy's wife, died shortly after giving birth to their son and they found that their friendship did develop into something deeper and um, this changing relationship was a big concern to the, the movie studio and for some reason the head of the studio Herbert Yates really did not want them to get married and he ended up suspending Dale after the wedding took place despite his disapproval but um, they they did decide to get married and Dale then became a stepmother to three young children yes and that she inherited this instant family including a young baby and all the while her actual son He's growing up and, and living his own life, essentially. And then Roy Rogers and Dale Evans have a child together. This is, to me, a pivotal 
part of her trajectory, not just personally, but um, professionally and as a public person. Their child had Down syndrome and didn't really live to see her second birthday. This was a devastating thing for them both, yet her Christian faith seemed to be something that buoyed her, and she started more demonstratively representing that. And it also pushed her into the direction of writing essentially inspirational books. And her first book was Angel Unaware that became a bestseller. In her life, she really did use tragedy to, I shouldn't say she used tragedy, she contextualized it in a way that allowed her to continue working, bringing issues to the public. So talk a little bit about this phase of of her life. Well, to to pull it back just a little bit to right after she married Roy and became a stepmother, I, I think she was very overwhelmed with these new responsibilities. And she was also out of work because Herbert Yates wouldn't let her come back to the studio for a while. So she was, uh, I think she was kind of floundering. And it was her son, Tommy, who suggested that maybe she needed to go back to church. Um, Dale had been raised in a Baptist family. Um, As I mentioned, her parents were still uh, very devout. Tommy had grown up that way too. And he suggested that maybe the time had come for her to return to church. And so this is what she does in the late 1940s. And Roy does join her with this. So it it becomes a, a family endeavor. And from the time that, that Dale went back to church, she did make religion just such an integral part of her life. They The family was not just a go to church on Sunday type of religious family. It really did pervade all aspects of their lives. And so when their their daughter Robin was born in 1950 with Down syndrome, and the Down syndrome diagnosis was complicated by the fact that she had physical problems as well. And that was really the the bigger problem and um, so she she was always a, a frail child and they of course had the means to hire nurses they they had quite a bit of help at home with robin and it it put a tremendous strain on her though because even when she wasn't filming movies anymore she and roy had personal appearances, and she she had to leave her young daughter then and, and go out and perform as Dale Evans while her, you know, her whole heart and, and mind is with her, her daughter, Robin. And so it was a very difficult um, two years. Robin died just, just shy of her second birthday. And as Dale was working through her grief, after Robin's death, she started writing about it. And as you mentioned, this is this is what launches yet another career for her. I mean, she's already an actor, she's already a singer, and 
in the early 1950s, she does become a best-selling author. And the book, Angel Unaware, has gone through dozens of reprinting since then. And, and especially in the 50s and even into the 60s, when most families at least kept quiet about such things, um, Dale Evans was willing to make this public and to explain how this affected her and her family. And then from there, she went on to write, you know, close to two dozen books that were mostly spiritual, religious, and had strong elements, of course, of autobiography in them as well. Cheryl Rogers called her stepmom, who was Dale Evans, a woman of anachronisms. And it seems that Dale Evans was a woman who she was very driven, and we haven't even talked about, and I don't think we're going to have time to talk about Dale Evans as a songwriter, because she was a songwriter, and you mentioned a couple of them. But she achieved a lot, and she managed a family, yet she didn't necessarily identify or support in an overt way the, the movement towards greater rights for women. Yet she didn't absent herself from that either. I think she maybe just defined herself uniquely as herself. Um, And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that anachronistic nature of Dale Evans. I think Cheryl Rogers was, uh, of course, very correct about that. And, And it is one of the more interesting aspects of her life because you're right that, uh, during the 70s and even into the 80s, when there was a lot of renewed interest in women's rights, Dale's writings and and even her, her public talks on this topic were very conservative. She she maintained that really the the place for women was in the home, that that their best and most fulfilling roles were as wives and mothers. But she did have that carve out that you mentioned. And she did allow that some women did have special abilities and special talents. And there should be a way, like she had done, of combining that with a good home and family life. So it was kind of a mixed message that she's sending. Where where do you draw the line? Where Where is that point where a personal ambition is allowed to overcome home and family? And and I don't I don't think she was ever willing to make that determination for other people. And she certainly had to negotiate that for herself, but that certainly did put her on the more conservative side when it came to women's rights issues because she was um, she was not a supporter of the equal rights amendment and um, she she did believe that everything that women needed to know about their roles they could learn from the bible right right well teresa kaminsky i appreciate your talking to us today about the life and times of Dale Evans. So uh, maybe it will 
bring some uh, new fans to Dale Evans. You are very welcome. I'm Suzanne Lang, and that was my conversation with Teresa Kaminsky and Queen of the West, The Life and Times of Dale Evans. The music in today's show is from singer-songwriter Mary McCaslin, who recently passed away. She's known for her Western-influenced songs and her open guitar tunings. archivist for the Levi Strauss Company, is a very curious person. And like our previous guest, when she is interested in something, she latches on and does not let go. And she is into dude ranches. We last talked with her about her novel, Dudes Rush In, which is a fast-paced fiction set on a dude ranch and will have a sequel. Well, now we get her nonfiction work, American Dude Ranch, A Touch of the Cowboy and the Thrill of the West. Let's listen to our conversation. American Dude Ranch, A Touch of the Cowboy and the Thrill of the West. Lynn Downey, welcome to talk to us today about this book. Thank you for having me again. You obviously have a fascination with the Dude Ranch. Uh, Your first novel was set at a Dude Ranch, but for years you were the archivist for the Levi Strauss Company, which I think probably at least put you in the world of genes. But tell us how you developed your fascination with the Dude Ranch, so much so that you wrote a book about it. Well, it's very true. My interest was really sparked when I worked for Levi Strauss and Company. I ran the corporate archives. And early on in my career, I had to familiarize myself with what was already in the collection. And there was this little catalog from 1938 called Dude Ranch Duds. And I thought, really? Clothes specifically to wear on a specific kind of vacation? So I found that intriguing. I already knew what a dude ranch was, just culturally. So I looked through the catalog and it was not only the basic jeans and jackets, but also satin shirts with contrasting piping and tight gabardine pants and flannel shirts. And I just, I thought that was really interesting. So on top of my regular research and work as the historian, I started researching dude ranching on my own. And then um, I made the big mistake of jumping on eBay to look for dude ranch memorabilia. And there's just so much out there. And I'm not saying I'm obsessed or anything, but I have over a hundred pieces of dude ranch memorabilia in my house. Um, What I love about this is the, the visual representation of the dude ranch and how different people see the dude ranch, whether it's the ranchers themselves creating postcards for tourists or it's railroads creating brochures to lure tourists in. What fascinates me about the Dude Ranch is 
this idea that you go on this vacation for transformation, to really kind of become another person. Food ranching is all about bringing the West into your life. And I think that's amazing. Well, it's also seems that the dude ranch is another way that we've really embellished and embedded the American mythos of the West into our mainstream culture, that the rise of the dude ranch kind of came with the decline of of the West, or if we want to call the civilizing of the West. And, And so it seems to me that the dude ranch and the fashions associated and the this um the myth of the west is really embodied in in the rise of the dude ranch it truly is um dude ranches are 140 years old this year the very first dude ranch began in a small way in medora north dakota run by the three eaton brothers from pittsburgh they first put out a guest book for um the hunters that they were hosting on their cattle ranch. These men would come through and you know go hunting through in the Rocky Mountain West and all the cattle ranchers would put them up for free. And then finally the Eaton brothers said, why aren't we charging these guys? And then they eventually moved to uh, Wyoming and started the first real dude ranch in 1904. So the dude ranching arose as the West was becoming tamer, exactly as you say. Buffalo Bill's Wild West debuted in 1883, 139 years ago. It's because that wildness of the frontier was passing. The railroads now completely crossed the West. Farmland was being gobbled up by the railroads. New cities were being built. Uh, The government was taking over more land. There's a lot of, as you know, federal land uh, out in the West. So it's as though as soon as it was gone, people realized how much they needed it. It's, a, it's sort of this escape hatch. The West is this escape hatch where you can escape your daily grind of your job or whatever. And early on, that's the, the function that dude ranches served, a place to go. And this is very, at its very beginnings, a place to go to sort of man up, to cowboy up. Um, if you're feeling you're living in New York or Connecticut and there's just maybe, you know, things are getting a little too civilized for you. And it seems like even today, the the Dude Ranch is a place you don't just drop in, you you don't just go for a couple of days, but it was meant to be a transformative experience. Uh, So talk a little bit about that. From the very beginning, that is exactly what they were supposed to be. And for men, they were. Further on, as you get into the 20th century, a lot more women start going to Dude Ranches and a couple of them by the 19, late 20s, early 30s, women are actually owning dude ranches. Um, so they're becoming entrepreneurs. They're finding that being a dude ranch owner, and these are women who were Westerners from the start, was a way to make their way in, a wor- in the world in the way they wanted to. But women, women would go to these ranches. Um, they would maybe wear denim for the first time. They wore jeans for the first time. Maybe they rode a Western saddle for the first time. This is, there's a lot of firsts for people at dude ranches. The idea and the, the business model is that you do have to make a reservation and it's still the same today. They do not take what's called the transient trade, like uh, early motels and, excuse me, early auto courts. And so the idea is that you immerse yourself in this experience. 
And it was easy in the early years because a lot of ranches were very remote. You had to take the train to the nearest town, then they'd come get you and you would spend your entire time on the ranch. You can still do that today. And the, the reason that dude ranches are still around 140 years later is because they have adapted to changes in tastes in tourism and, and what people want in a vacation. Um, you still can't drive up and grab a room at a dude ranch that business model is still with us. But today, dude ranches offer things that ranchers in the 1930s would never have thought of. Swimming pools, tennis courts, skeet shooting, electric bikes, all of these things a dude ranch will offer you, but the core of who they are is always the horse and is always horseback riding. And sometimes you might even help, if you're an experienced rider, you can help um, move some cattle around, or you can help bring the horses down from the pasture for the day's riders. Um, that, is, that is the main core of what a dude ranch is. And what I've also found in my research and my time working on this topic is that many dude ranches are in the second or third or even fourth generation of a family ownership. This is tradition that has been passed down through families for decades. These are, these are real Westerners and they're they want to offer this experience to their guests. And I imagine it might be the same for some of the guests that they return or they have multi-generational visits to dude ranches. Absolutely. Lynn, before we get too much further, because in, in the book you have fun with just talking about dudes and contrasting a dude to a cowboy so and, and really you get into that so talk a little bit about dudes and dude <laughs> in contrast to the the cowboys well the word dude as applied to a dude ranch it's a very old word dates to certainly middle english i think it was um and it was a word dudist that actually meant clothing but by the time the word dudas, that's where we get the word duds, crossed the Atlantic from England and came over to America, the word dude referred to the person wearing clothing, and it meant fancy clothing. Etymologists have no idea how this happened, but somehow the word for clothes became the word for the person, and it's usually a man, wearing very, very fancy clothing, very much higher class, non-working class clothing. And at the same time that dude ranches were getting started, there was this sort of fear amongst um, <clears throat> elite higher class men that they were becoming a little less manly because of that over-civilizing thing that was happening. <clears throat> these waves of immigrants are coming in. Um, these immigrants are not you know, proper, upstanding, Protestant, church-going people. And they're feeling as though their, their masculinity is being threatened on all sides from culture. Um, and some, sometimes it's some of these men are the dudes themselves, these, these, fancy, these fancy men. So these, and so often it would be these men who would want to take this sort of cowboy vacation. Unbeknownst to them, they might be considered a figure of fun once they got out to Wolf, Wyoming or Medora, North Dakota. But what's really funny is that dude ranchers themselves, this was a, by the, 1920s, there were quite a few throughout the Rocky Mountain West and a few in Arizona. 
And they decided to get together and form a trade organization called the Dude Ranchers Association to try to collaborate and, and really make this into a, a, a formidable business and not just be these sort of individual operations. And they struggled with what they were gonna call themselves. And there were lots of discussions at the first meeting. Well, should we be the Dude Ranchers Association? A lot of newspaper articles made fun of the word dude. Oh, if you're a dude, it means you're a sissy and the cowboy has to really help you, you know, get on your horse and, you know, et cetera. So again, as you said, the, the complete contrast to the cowboy. But to a dude rancher, uh, the, you know, male or female in Montana, Wyoming, Arizona, wherever, to them, a dude was someone who came from somewhere else to come and experience their ranch. They thought it was a completely legitimate word for their guests. And to them, it wasn't a derogatory term at all. That sort of still went on in culture that a dude was someone who's a, a fancy man, but for dude ranchers themselves, it wasn't an insult. And dude ranches caught on in a way that they're not just a phenomena of the West, but you have them in, and, and even in the early days um, in Florida, and in New York. So it seems that it's a business model that that worked. It certainly did. And I will tell you that those ranches in upstate New York and Florida really made Western dude ranchers mad because they did not see those ranches as legitimate because they were not in the West. These were long-term Westerners and they felt that what they had created was a, a very typically Western kind of vacation. And no matter how many cowboys and horses somebody in the Adirondacks has at their quote unquote dude ranch, they just didn't feel it was legitimate. But that's, you know, that was their quarrel. Um, it, is a, it is a model that, that worked. And no matter where you placed it, it did work as long as you stayed true to that core, that you're offering, you know, a horsey experience. You have cowboys, you have wranglers that um, manage the horses. The other thing that the, a dude ranch must have is really good food. Um, and the cook was probably second only to the wrangler as the most important employee on the ranch. Yes, and the food, which, uh, and, and we'll say the hospitality end of it, the house management department, so to speak, was typically run by women and, and the wives or the wives, I should say. So women from the start had a pretty important role to play in the managing of the dude ranches. And I got kind of a kick out of the Dude Ranchers Association that you just mentioned has a regular you know, publication, a professional publication. But that house management column, so to speak, changed its name frequently. <laughs> and I, I think that, to me, my reaction to that was that uh, women were heavily involved in the running of these enterprises, but um, still maybe didn't know how to be placed in the business or characterized in, in the business just because they were women. And I, I don't know, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, the, um, the Dude Ranchers Association was formed in 1926. And then in 1931, they debuted their magazine, Dude Rancher. And 
there was a column called house management and that was the column written by all of the quote unquote dude ranch wives as well as dude ranch owners like mary shaver um, who was with home ranch was near yellowstone the, there, there was definitely a division of labor on the dude ranch the men managed the wranglers the livestock uh, the women were, were responsible for overseeing employees who did housekeeping and cooking, entertainment, and guest relations. So there was a traditional division of labor in the dude ranch, but they were still, the women were still equal partners with their husband because one could not function without the other. If one half of that partnership fell apart, the whole dude ranch would fall apart. And women took on that role happily. They felt that that was their role. Now, occasionally, although this happens a lot more often today, maybe the daughter of the family might pitch in as a wrangler now and then. It, there was this division of labor, but it wasn't a solid line. You know, you could go, there was a lot of fluidity in uh, running the dude ranch. And if a woman had to pitch in and help lead a trail ride or whatever, they would do that. So first it was called the house management department. That was their column. And then later, I think for a very short time, it was called the dude ranch wife, which I don't think they liked that name, but I think they used it. And then there was just like, I think it was called the, the woman's page. And that was really a reflection of what was going on in society. Certainly in the post-war years when after World War II, women saw themselves relegated to a much more domestic role. And the women were trying to, I think, they saw what was going on in culture and they, and they were following that. Although the, the magazine itself was primarily for other dude ranchers. But there were a lot of affiliated businesses that were members of the association, and they would also get this magazine. So I'm thinking that the women wanted to make sure they saw that they ran, they ran their part of the domain well, um, so that would continue to be attractive for those people who were reading about the ranch. Of course, their guests would see them in this traditional role as well, and I think that was also important. And, you know... Also, the rise of dude ranches in the 20th century went along with, um, we were involved in two world wars, and um, families, especially wealthy elites, were used to traveling to Europe. So now we have trains crossing the country, and then later on automobiles, but it went along with See America First was an actual campaign or, or that it brought people to vacation in our own country instead of going to Europe. So that was really kind of a critical thing. And I think we could say we saw the same happen during COVID too. Oh, exactly. World War I was a pivotal moment for dude ranches because these wealthy elites could not take their yearly visit um, to Europe after 1914. So they looked the other direction. Uh, they, looked, they looked west. And dude ranchers have always been good at marketing. And they did a good job taking advantage of, of that, especially some of the bigger ranches. One of them was the Valley Ranch outside of Cody. They had fancy brochures. They put in travel agency windows in New York and Connecticut and Los Angeles. So wartime certainly made a difference. During World War II, things were a little bit different. A lot of the Wranglers um, enlisted to fight in Europe and in Asia. And so in order to keep their, in order to keep going, sometimes guests would come and stay on a dude ranch and they would pitch in and do the chores. And a lot of them loved that. That's specifically why they went to the dude ranch. And dude ranches were held up as important places. Eleanor uh, Roosevelt 
and her husband from FDR, at some point mentioned how important recreation was during the war years in order to refresh you know, the body and, and the soul. And dude ranches were seen as essential. Um, there were essential recreation places for soldiers on leave to visit. But again, there was this, there was this sense that they were all sticking together. These guests would come in and, and pitch in and they didn't mind that rationing meant the food was maybe not up to par. Um, but uh, definitely war, you know, wartime did did have an, an impact. The dude ranches were largely patronized by white people, but there were some noted exceptions. And I found it interesting that in Apple Valley in Southern California is where there were dude ranchers. That, in fact, Roy Rogers. He had a place down in Apple Valley, but it was Murray's that was a dude ranch that maybe catered exclusively to to black patrons. I don't know. Talk about Murray's a little bit. Yeah, Murray's is an amazing part of the story. You're absolutely right. Early dude ranchers, we're talking decades, did not allow people of color. Many of the early ones did not allow Jews. If you applied for a reservation and your name sounded Jewish, you did not get a reservation. And that's because a lot of the early ranchers came from back east where this was the social contract. Um, and there was this kind of anti-Semitism. We're getting into the 1930s now. Um, that passes away a little bit, mostly because during the Depression, ranchers had to do what they could to keep people coming in um, you know, when, uh, when money was tight, even for elites. But Nola and Leela Murray, uh, lived in Los Angeles, and they moved to Apple Valley um, for their health. And they wanted to open a place for city kids who needed a country vacation, especially underserved, underprivileged kids. So they, they opened up this sort of children's home um, in Apple Valley. They really had trouble making a go of it, so they turned it into a dude ranch. And it was a, it was a dude ranch for Black individuals and families, but it didn't really, it also was having a little trouble getting going. And then one day, Fighter Joe Lewis came to the Victorville Rodeo, which was a huge rodeo in the area. And he, at the, at the moment, he was being trailed by a photography crew from Life magazine. Someone told him about Murray's, which was nearby, and he went out there with the photographers and spent some time there. He got on a horse, he learned how to rope, and these photographers took a lot of photos and there, an article ran in Life magazine. And it did everything for Murray's. It turned the place completely around. Um, they were you know, swamped with visitors. And for the first probably 15 or 20 years, it was black families and individuals exclusively. But then eventually white people wanted to go. And it became this completely diverse, open to everybody kind of a place that began as, as a, a struggling place because black families had no place to go. Um, it's a wonderful story. Um, there is nothing left of Murray's. The desert has just taken everything back. Um, it was all the buildings were finally sold off by the 1970s. And it's just there's nothing there today. But there are wonderful historians in Southern California who've done a lot of research on it. Um, it's a story that needs to be preserved. Yes, when I've driven through that area, Victorville, I found it to be rather um, a desolate place. And so to find out that at one time it was quite vibrant, it was just surprising to me. I'll take a different look at it next time I drive through there. <laughs> Lynn, is there anything else you want to leave us with about really 
I guess, the cultural significance of the American Dude Ranch? A couple of things, Uh, one of which is, we mentioned this earlier, when the pandemic hit, a lot of dude ranches, most of them did not really close down. They saw a very interesting phenomenon. They saw an uptick in reservations during 2020. Reservations from people who had never been to dude ranches before. And that's because people could go and have a mostly outdoor vacation on a dude ranch. They still had to follow the social distancing and other protocols when they were you know, indoors. And, but they saw this surge of people desperate for outdoor vacations and the healing powers of the outdoors. And they went to dude ranches. And then a lot of these people rebooked for 2021. Um, and the ranchers were sort of not surprised by it, but they were pleased because it, they saw that new people who, had, who might not have in the past chosen to, to take a dude ranch vacation. I had one rancher tell me that the one thing that was sad for him was that the intimacy of the, of the dude ranch vacation was gone because of, of what they had to do with social distancing. And this is, this is what I tell people, the difference between a hotel and a dude ranch. You go to a hotel, you don't know who the owner is. You barely know who the manager is unless you have a complaint. You go to a dude ranch, you're in that person's home. You're in that couple's home. And it makes for such a unique and personal kind of vacation. Um, I was at the White Stallion Dude Ranch in Tucson this past March. And I met a couple um, who have been coming to the ranch since about 1995. That's how long they have been coming every year to the ranch. And you see this all over dude ranching. And I, I think what this, what this means to me is I feel like Americans will always need the West. There are ways in which the, the American West is a place of refuge for us culturally and even emotionally in times of struggle in this country and, and time when things are changing in this country, maybe things are a little bit nerve wracking. You see people turning more toward looking at the West. Um, and I think that's why dude ranches will always be with us. Lynn Downey, American Dude Ranch, A Touch of the Cowboy and The Thrill of the West. Thanks for talking to us today. Thank you, Suzanne. That was Lynn Downey and her book, American Dude Ranch, A Touch of the Cowboy and the Thrill of the West. Earlier, we spoke with Teresa Kaminsky on her biography of Dale Evans, Queen of the West. Both authors have a lot of fun researching and exploring their subjects, and I hope you will too. Thanks for listening today. We have production assistance from Will Penny and Mark Prell. We are a production of Lit Radio and Northern California Public Media. Find us at krcb.org, listen to past shows, and subscribe to our podcast. I am Suzanne Lang with a novel idea. <laughs>